Hello, and welcome to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for joining us. This is episode 15, Here Endeth the Lesson. This episode is dedicated to Catherine Coulter and Alice Hume. Welcome, everybody, to the final episode of the Newcastle Witches podcast. Um, This episode is called Here Endeth the Lesson, and so I thought I would invite Katie Ledane and David Silk back to chat with me about questions people have asked um, through social media and also just to reflect on the podcast and things that have come up. So thank you both for joining me. You're welcome. I like (laughs) I'm a bit of a regular. I think David's been on a few as well. Yeah, I've been on two, I think, so far. So nice to be back. I think when I started off this podcast, um, I had very much like a, a set idea of what I thought witches were. And I think both of you would ha- have helped me sort of debunk those <laughs> those preconceptions. Um, namely that I thought they would all be kind of midwives or, you know, that whole thing about the woman as the healer. Yeah, it's just a misunderstood person in society. And um, also just thinking about what doesn't get spoken about enough is the the history of like pre-industrial revolution in in Newcastle and how that changed so much of society and maybe led to this this witch craze that we had. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's very important to put these things in their kind of proper context, I suppose, in terms of the kind of society that produces this kind of... um, witch craze not that I think as I've said a couple of times I think in the other episodes I don't think we're immune to that kind of thinking anymore but you know I think it manifests differently nowadays yeah it definitely makes me recognize things that are happening nowadays and sort of I get a bit worried um so uh hopefully you know that won't happen um but also a few people have uh written in with some some questions and I think like okay the witch trials we're talking about were a singular big event but do we know anything um and anyone can answer like about witch trials before 1650 anybody who was executed anyone who was tried do we have any of that kind of information were there many or was this really just an isolated incident i guess in the northeast is what i'm asking yeah so the northeast kind of had much fewer witch trials than elsewhere in the UK. Um, it's Well, I just said UK, but the UK wasn't a thing then, but I'm going to breeze past it. <laughs> um, in England and Scotland, um, especially in comparison to areas like East Anglia with Matthew Hopkins and mm-hmm. um, Scotland kind of had an entirely different situation um, happening a lot of the time. Um, we do have records for some prior cases before... Um, before 1650. Um, In the 1560s, we see a man called William Ford, who is punished for consorting with a warlow in Newcastle. A warlow is kind of linguistically related to the word warlock, which is more often like a male practitioner of magic, even though men could be and were accused of being witches. Mm -hmm. So it's not a kind of heavily gendered binary but warlock is more often used especially in scotland for male practitioners of magic yeah i was gonna say it's a kind of scottish influence there isn't there it's a kind of yeah 
definitely, which um, really supports my thesis, so I was very glad to see that case. <laughs> <laughs> um, then in the 15... The late 16th century, 1570s to 1590s, we have Alice Swan, um, who was accused of turning the riddle, um, which is a sieve balanced on a set of shears. And it was a method of divination, so either telling the future or um, just generally finding out unknown knowledge beyond human comprehension. Okay. And she'd use this to find lost items for her neighbours. It's quite a common crime in terms of witchcraft. And again, because this was prior to the 1603 Witchcraft Act and it was a more minor offence, like she didn't kill anybody or anything. Um, She just had to do public penance in St Andrew's Churchyard, essentially reading out like a pre-prepared statement saying, I have committed this crime. And she says it's for... Um, for a love of filthy lucre. So she says she's doing it for money. And in her in her confession that she does for penance, there's a list of the um, fellow parishioners that she was providing the service for. So there's an element of shaming of them going on at that time as well. Oh, that's really interesting. I can't like, see that at some point. I've... Uh... I've had a go with the sieve and shears. Like, uh, um, I have a set of shears at home. And, uh, what do you do with them? Sieve. Just walk um, around town. So you wedge the, you open, it's difficult to explain on a podcast because you can't <laughs> yeah. show people, but you open the shears out. and okay. um, So you open the metal blades of the shears and you wedge them onto the sieve. And then you hold them. They have a kind of round sprung piece at the top, like a pair of sheep shears. Mm-hmm. And you hold them with one finger on each of those. Yeah. And the sieve rotates. Uh-huh. Um, so it's essentially like a pendulum, which a lot of people still use for things like dowsing or divination and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and yeah, you would normally kind of, you know, expect it to rotate one way for yes and one way for no or something along those lines. And so they would ask, I think, you know, oh, does such and such have your lost chicken or whatever it is? <laughs> and like the sieve would rotate. And as it rotates, they would kind of take that as being signifying the answer, basically. Yeah, and sometimes you see the accused witches being accused of having stolen the item in the first place. <laughs> okay, because how, like, otherwise, how would they know where it is? Yeah. <laughs> so if you steal an item and then charge somebody to find it for them, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> solid business plan. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, I think, because it's heavy. Like the the shears are quite heavy, mm-hmm. and obviously the sieve's relatively heavy. Yeah. So I, I think it works similarly to that where it doesn't take very much once you get a little bit of motion going side to side it, you get what's what what's it called the ouija boards work on it as well as a word for the effect that it, it's uh, using there's like a scientific phrase for i'm not aware the, of the phrase but yeah but the very small movements of your hand often like involuntary movements essentially of your hand so that you don't notice that they're happening can cause quite big movements of <laughs> the object in question so you kind of the user kind of feels like they're not controlling which mm-hmm. direction it's turning. It it's kind of feels like it's turning by itself. I think dowsing works on a similar... I was going to bring up mechanism. the dowsing rods, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's, there's a word for it which we could look up, but... Physics. <laughs> there's a, yeah. a word for the... It's the something effect. But, um. Um, and 
so were these so none of these witches were actually though like tried or condemned to to death or anything like that it was um so these two that i mentioned just there were tried and um convicted Mm -hmm. but their punishment was much lesser than it was in in 1650 um closer in time period we have alexander hamilton who sometimes appears as humbleton or hambleton and um the sheriff of newcastle says that he escorted alexander hamilton who was known as the devil's chancellor from newcastle back up into scotland to be burnt as a witch and we have this in the sheriff's diary in the sheriff's diary but um if you look at the actual scottish records for the same man there's no verdict recorded okay um yeah so there's a kind of a bit of a miscommunication like um thomas swinburne who was the sheriff at the time he escorted him back up into Scotland, assuming that the Scots would burn him. But the Scots but... didn't burn him. No, because Alexander Hamilton was a very good salesman <laughs> in some <laughs> senses. Um, he claimed to originally be from Newcastle or Gateshead, but he kind of travelled the Anglo-Scottish border as a beggar and a vagabond. And that's what he originally appears in the Tollbooth jail for. But as soon as people found out that he was was finally apprehended, a load of accusations of witchcraft come in. And they're kind of... It it feels weird to say, like, standard fare of killing cattle with the devil's powers. But um, the accusations made against him are, like, standard fare within witchcraft studies. So um, sickness of sickness or death of cattle, sickness of people that he'd had disputes with. Uh, But then he starts implicating a lot of other people, um, saying that there's a kind of larger conspiracy of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that he implicates is a lady, Manderston, who is a kind of relatively wealthy woman in um, Scottish society on the borders. So things kind of get... uh, redirected to her the kind of judicial energies and he just kind of fades into the background quite similar to um dorothy swinnow yeah. in the wonderful mm-hmm. news pamphlet mm-hmm. is this season two of the podcast then though just that you've just told us <laughs> the devil's chancellor I mean, it's a good title to have you know if i end up being called that later in my life i wouldn't be upset yeah like when i first found about it out about him it was in the um, Thomas Swinburne diary and that is where he mentions the devil's chancellor title so I was like I was expecting him to be um like quite a wealthy and important figure uh and in a lot of discussions about like male and female mm-hmm. witchcraft practitioners you do sometimes see that men were accused of practicing a more like learned form of magic yeah um so famous figures like John Dee, for example. Um, it was more like written magic and scrying mirrors and things like that. So I was expecting a, yeah. Yeah, a relative amount of like status or much more detail. but Like some nerd that's in his library that's full of books. And Grimoires. Yeah. yeah, like <laughs> forbidden knowledge. But um, it was just, he's just a, a vagabond hopping between England and Scotland, arguing with people and then they get sick. So... <laughs> Yeah. I would love to find out a bit more about how he got that title or whether it was just the Sheriff of Newcastle kind of 
embellishing his story a little bit. Yeah. Season two, if anyone wants to sponsor yeah, it. Yeah, Some Scottish go. witch trials. Yeah, the, it's this, the, the North Berwick witch trials. The main witch is a schoolmaster, isn't he? The guy who they... Yeah. Um, which, I didn't know that. I always tell school children that because I just think they kind of makes them look very suspiciously at their teachers. That's fascinating. But then it seems, obviously, as we've been, we just did a whole podcast about it, how things tipped, and obviously we had the big, big witch trials, which we talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people have asked me about the witch pricker and how do you kill so many people and have a reputation? but seemingly your name disappears. Well, I mean, I think the real problem with that is just how few sources there are for these trials. You know, some of the stuff that that Katie's been able to dig up has been great. I mean, previously the only real one that I knew of, and still I think the major source is Gardner, Mm -hmm. Ralph Gardner. Um, And so because he doesn't record the guy's name, that's it. He, he vanishes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, like, really, it's a case of accidental survival. If he'd thought to go, oh, by the way, this guy's name was, and write it down, then we would have his name, but mm-hmm. we don't. And Gardner was working five years later based on the accounts of three other people as well. So Gardner might not have known. Like, it, it was less of a case of he just, like, didn't, didn't think or didn't bother. Yeah there's like that extra degree of separation as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we did, I think we mentioned it in the Witch Pricker episode yeah. before. I have gone in and tried to match up the story with other Witch Prickers that we do know were operating in Scotland at the time, especially around the borders. But we can't seem to find a man that was uh, yeah. hanged in 1650. Yeah, I know a number of people have tried that. And um, I think Joe Bath has been on the podcast yeah. as well, and I think she's—I know she's attempted that at some point in the past because I remember having a lengthy discussion with her about whether or not it could have been John Kincaid, who's usually—if you read accounts on the internet of the witch trials in Newcastle, he's the likeliest name to come up. People often will claim that it was Kincaid. Yeah, there are a few um, people that just straight up yeah. say it was Kincaid or say that Kincaid was the most likely. Yeah, um, but. But yeah, I think she kind of said, no, it, it really can't be, unless he's got an incredibly fast horse or something. <laughs> mm. um, and his career didn't, maybe, but his career didn't really take off until after yeah. the Newcastle Witch Trials. So I, I kind of used the criteria of he would have had to have been relatively close to this, the border and well-known enough to be sent for mm-hmm. by name. Um, that's why George Cathy is like my favourite candidate, but I can't definitively say. And George Cathy was working with an accused witch in order to identify other witches. Uh-huh. And with Gardner being so so thorough and so angry about the situation mm-hmm. and Newcastle's councilman, I feel like he maybe would have mentioned that the witchfinder had the audacity to be working with yeah. an accused witch in order to find more... Although, who'd know better? Mm. Exactly. <laughs> um, but still, the witches were killed. And I guess this is, you know, we found they knew he was a fraud and still all these innocent people were killed. And I know your mum, you said, like, it was a, a trial and people accepted that verdict. But it still really stings me um, that everyone's like, no, the witch finders are, the witch pricker is a fraud, but let's kill all these people anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, Gardner's timescale is a bit confused on that as well, I think, isn't it? Okay. He, he just says that he... So sometime between the witch trials and Gardner writing, which is about 1655, mm-hmm. um, he says that the witch finder is caught up in Scotland and is found to be a fraud and is hanged. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible that happens well after the Newcastle witch trials, you know, like mm-hmm. as much as five years afterwards. Um, and people might then have kind of gone, oh, well... Um, <laughs> Maybe we'd best not mention that because, you know, we've executed 15 people on the back yeah, of that. Well, exactly. told us. But I do think there is an element of, you know, in, in England particularly, more so than a lot of other European countries, that this was all done in a very kind of like legalistic way. So the people who, the witch pricker would have found the people who were then put on trial and said, yeah, these people are witches. But presumably other people that he accused, I think, did they not say that he finds 30 people? And only 15 are hanged. So 15 must have gone off with it, I think, like, or been acquitted in the court. So there is a a kind of process of refining the number down, which sounds a quite, like, pragmatic thing to say about executing people for witchcraft. But, um, yeah, there's originally around 30 people brought forth by, um, or via the use of the bellman. The bellman comes out into the town and says, do you think anybody is a witch? Would you like to (laughs) test them for witchcraft? Um, and 30 people are kind of drawn out from that. And then the witch finder, I think it's about 27, he picks by sight alone because he, he boasts of himself and has a reputation that he can tell witches by sight alone, Yeah. which later comes back to bite him with um, Paul Hobson that we can go go into in a bit more detail later. And then it's ultimately only 15 mm-hmm. Um that he's able to convincingly identify as witches. Or at least, but, yeah, that the court accepts the evidence against yeah. them. So I think there's an element of that where they say, well, the witch finder himself might be a fraud, but we've the evidence has been put before us and we've the jury has decided that these people really are witches. So exactly. They, were, they might have been caught by dubious means, but you know, yeah, the evidence so, has, has come out and, and convicted them. I think that's the, the most important part here so you've got the idea of like the town demanding something to be done about the witches so there's more like informal pressure but also the pricking was used in the newcastle cases as a more like preliminary measure Mm -hmm. so a little bit more about identification and physical evidence but rather than the executions happening on the basis of that physical evidence the witches were held in jail for trial at the Assizes, yeah, yeah. which was a travelling circuit of courts. Um, so it wasn't that everything rested on the pricking. Yeah. There's further evidence, witness testimony and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, I mean, really, it's one of those things that, you know, even now I think lots of people have a real dread of the idea of being accused of something and kind of hold up in court and mm-hmm. kind of having all this evidence put out when you know you're not guilty. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it, it, yeah, it must have been a really horrendous experience, I think, because, as I say, you know, you're being brought up in court, and some of the evidence that was brought up is liable to have been fairly um, dubious mm-hmm. you know, standards, I would think, you know. Um, things about invisibly attacking people's children or whatever, you know, and drawing on other court cases rather than knowing specifically what these people were accused of. But Exactly. Um, Jen Martin certainly was accused of attacking people's children sort of invisibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and things of that sort. And I mean, yeah, it's just a horrible thing to be accused of and have people trotting this stuff out when mm-hmm. you know that, that that isn't true, you know. 
And with John Hutton in the same in the yeah. same pamphlet, he died awaiting trial. Yeah. Anyway, so you, yeah, you've got to think about the horrible jail conditions at the time too. Well, that's it. And I mean, we talked a little bit about that when we talked about the possibility of torture being used as well, that he, you know, we don't know whether he was kind of roughed up in prison to get names out of him or whatever. It's kind of rural northeast England, you know, it's it's far from impossible, I think. You know, that sort of thing happens now um, from time to time. So I don't think there's any reason to suppose it didn't happen in the 1600s. But there were people that, I guess, tried to defend the witches? Yes, so um, we have Eleanor Lumsdale who actually provided one of the accounts that Gardner uses. Mm -hmm. She spent a year in jail for trying to dissuade people from giving evidence against her friend Margaret Brown. And we know that she survived the jail conditions because she gets in touch with Ralph Gardner later on. Um, I think it's also quite telling that the executions took place next to a barracks as well to kind of suppress any opposition um, or any kind of riots. Mm. We see later examples of um, riots at large public hangings. So the town didn't necessarily just passively accept that quite a large proportion of um, a a small community were being publicly Mm. executed. She had the moss troopers as well. Mm. Um, Nine moss troopers and the 16 witches. I mean, we spoke about that, didn't we? Of yeah. how public executions were these big fanfares and stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, they really were, you know, when, when we talk about them being public, it's not just that they were held in public, they were public events. They were kind of, you know, they were, they were the equivalent of like county fairs and stuff like that. They, there was kind of a, yeah. And when we, we talked in that episode a little bit about why it ended up being banned, and it was because the authorities felt that, you know, this wasn't really a very edifying spectacle for people you know what i mean these kind of riotous conditions at a lot of these things and um i was reading something recently about um and it was a i think it was a french account of public hangings in england um and it was saying that you know the english have great respect for thieves and murderers who are able to kind of be hanged but in a kind of suitably blasé kind of fashion and you'd have all these like crowds out to cheer these people who mm-hmm. kind of threw their lives away very uh, very casually sort of thing but um, and yeah, they weren't always seen as being kind of great moral spectacles, like you say. There was always yeah. um, there were trouble at these things. You know, they um, they weren't solemn. I think one of the um, most popular questions that came through was people wanting to know if they were related to one of the witches or one of the accusers. Um, it's really difficult for us to know that information um, because we have so little to go on from the actual accounts. Um, is there anywhere that people can look or anything we can suggest to them? Or is it just no? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so in my research, kind of tracing the, the legacies of the witch trials, um, because there's so little out there, I have been able to include the vast majority of texts from 1655 to now that say Newcastle witches um, and in the the early to mid 90s there was a local genealogy ancestry journal that included the list of the accused witches and said like was your ancestress a witch mm. so it's one of these like very small anomalous blips in interest in the Newcastle witches 
Um, and I think at that time, the idea was, the response was, you're really going to struggle to find out because <laughs> uh, they're quite common names. And also for especially women at this time, we don't have a lot of information about them that you can then like map on to. Um, there are uh, quarter sessions records for some of the accusations that you'd be able to find at Tyne and Weir archives and museums, maybe through some of Peter Rushton's work. But I would wish you a lot of luck in tracing your family history. Yeah, I mean, really, <laughs> getting back to the 1600s is difficult. I mean, exactly. before anything pre-census mm-hmm. becomes very hard. Like, it's... It, it, it's still a lot of work, you know, and people dedicate their whole lives to sort of family history and genealogy as a study. Um, so it's it's difficult still, but, you know, it's a lot easier from 1811 onwards to trace your family because you can, you can often find them in census records and you can trace where people have moved to and who they're married to. And you can, you can make reasonably sure that these are the people that you're talking about. But before that, records really aren't very complete. You might have parish records and things like that if you know exactly the parish that they live in. Um, but even these aren't always terribly reliable or complete. I mean, that's the thing, you know, a lot of those records just aren't complete going that far back. And the further you go back, the less and less likely they are to be complete. And you'll really struggle to kind of um, say for sure that this Margaret Madison, for example, is that Margaret Madison in the witch trials. You know, that, that yeah. is not an uncommon name. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go into the cathedral in Newcastle, there is a big memorial to the Madison family who are an absolutely massive family of gentry um in newcastle during the civil war i think i think they were royalists and then changed sides um fairly typically (laughs) thereby surviving the whole uh, the whole situation relatively unscathed um but you know they were a huge family and they're with lots and lots of members and they're all called things like margaret madison john madison henry madison um, so it, it can be difficult when you see these names to go like, yeah, I mean, that's definitely this guy as opposed to any of the other, you know, Margaret Madsons or Henry Madisons who were out there at the time. I got very excited because um, last year I was filming in a place called Bransworth Castle. I don't know if you've ever yeah. been uh, in, in Durham and that it was um, back in the day, it belonged to the Bulmer family. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe it's related. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they have archives, and they're like, you're welcome to come and come and sift through them, but it's likely that that part of the family moved out of the castle, mm-hmm. you know, well before he was convicted. So, yeah, I thought I had unearthed something, and then I was like, no, this is so maybe a dead end. Well, a lot well, of these names know. as well, yeah. I mean, that, that, you know, that's a popular thing in family history, isn't it? You get um, online, there'll be hundreds of websites that say, like, you know, is this your family coat of arms? Um, and there'll be ones that, you know, a member of, you know, somebody with your same surname has at some point had a coat of arms and kind of, it's often kind of touted that that means that that's therefore your coat of arms. And it's not really how these things work, in fact, but, you know, and, yeah, you know, just because you've got the same surname as someone doesn't necessarily mean that you're closely related. Probably somewhere down the line, all these people are related. You know? yeah. it's like, um, it's very, only, very far back. There's only so many people in the in the world. It, <laughs> but, it could be, though. You never know. Just in, in reference to a period that we do have, like, census data for, um, there would be potential to talk about people that were accused of witchcraft in the 19th century. Um, that's something that, that I do in the kind of middle section of my thesis. 
So you don't see kind of convictions for witchcraft in the 19th century, but there are traces in the newspaper archives of women accused and kind of taking their accusers to court for okay. for assault and defamation. So to just kind of link that back in, if you if it was possible to triangulate census data and the British newspaper archives yeah. and the <laughs> Tyne and Weir um, muse- um, archives and museums records of the any court appearances it's a lot of work but it is somebody accused of witchcraft somewhere in your family history that certainly is possible if you know where they live Um, exactly so we've done bits of that for just research at the castle before on um you know names that have come up in newspaper reports in the castle garth and then looking for through the census records for people with the same name and if they've got the same occupation and things listed then you can be reasonably confident that you know that that is that person Um, and we even managed to find years and years ago. There's a reference in the very the early 1800 about 1819 to a baby being born in the castle for the first time in hundreds of years, and it's the child of a colour sergeant in the British Army. Um, and we were able through things like ancestry um, websites and the British newspaper archives, not only to get some photographs of her dad, like this baby's dad, later in his life. He lived quite a long life. He lived into the fairly late 1800s there was photographs of him um uh we also found a museum that held some of his personal belongings um, oh, wow. and traced some of his family to australia who were able to send us a photograph of his daughter um when she was a very old woman that was in a family bible um oh. so stuff like that does kind of crop up and you know you can you can make some amazing leaps sometimes which is great you know so uh, yeah if you can find a newspaper record of somebody being accused of witchcraft with uh your your sort of family name on it. There's a I think there's a good chance you could go through census records and find them if you were dedicated enough. Yeah, so in the newspaper reports you do find a kind of a full name given, um, the the area of the town mm-hmm. that they're from. And um often the accusations are kind of within families or within neighbourhoods at this later date. So and um especially if it's men you'll find the um career yeah their occupation their occupation given as well so you will need a little less look in the 19th century than you will need in the 17th yeah um but talking about uh you know finding or you know commemorating people um the 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 site of the actual execution i know it's been up for some debate but um also wanted to make people aware that there are plans to commemorate the witch trials and that's something that you and the team at Newcastle Castle David have been working on yeah uh, very much egged on by Katie in fact um, (laughs) when she did uh, her placement with us Um, and uh, yeah that's something that we'd still love to see happen and is in progress we've got um, we've got permission from the city council and from they've spoken with Urban Green about the potential of having it in Lees's Park which is part of the old town moor, built mm-hmm. on what was part of the old town moor. Um, the actual site of the gallows, I mean, is debated and may well just be under a main road somewhere, um, which wouldn't be a very appropriate place for a memorial. Um, so we're looking at somewhere where people can actually see it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we're hoping uh, sort of fairly soon to start um, identifying some pots of funding that might. Um, be able to pay for that and hopefully pay for an artist to design up 
um, what this memorial will look like. It's going to take some kind of physical form, but um, well, I mean, we kind of don't want to just decide what that's going to look like. Basically, you know, mm -hmm. we would quite like that to go out to some kind of consultation um, with local community and with artists putting in um, some tenders, some ideas yeah. for for what this might look like, and. Um, you know, having people choose that rather than just us say, right, we want a, a big plaque or whatever, you know, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, I would like people's names on it somewhere because I think it's important to remember people's names and that they are real, you know, that to me just makes them real, real people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what form that will take is still to be decided. But um, we're hopeful that Newcastle will join Pendle and various other places um, in having uh, a memorial to yeah. their Come on, Newcastle. Uh, Get it sorted. Yeah, <laughs> sort yourselves out. I think it's just, it's, as you say, like, um, people listen to this podcast from all over the world. Um, it's an interesting story, but I think there is now a really strong desire to recognise sort of crimes of the past and especially such violent crimes against women. And I really, I really hope Newcastle does, yeah, commemorate them in a space and sort of offer people that quiet contemplation to think about you know, things that have happened in the city that were effect effectively censored. Yeah, I mean, I think mm. that's true. I think, you know, I, I think it was uh, an episode which was thought to be best forgotten, really, you know. Um, and, yeah, I, I agree, I think. And I, I think, as you were saying earlier, not hinted at earlier, it kind of it brings to mind a lot of things in the modern day as well. I think it is important to recognise that the the type of thinking that drives witch hunts doesn't go anywhere. It's, you know, I think it's pretty baked into to humankind on some level. Um, and I think it's important to remember these things because among other things, it, it makes you kind of second guess your own behavior and go, okay, hang on. Am I making these, these same mistakes? I mean, you know, yeah. why people say it's important to um, learn history really, isn't it? Avoid repeating mm -hmm. these, the mistakes that people have made in the past. This is true. I think that's my big takeaway from the this podcast. <laughs> um, and when are you publishing your book, Kate? Oh, I've not. I've not got finished with the thesis yet. <laughs> so um, my my viva is coming up, uh, but there is kind of scope to transform the thesis into a book eventually. It's not the first time that I've been asked, but it always gives me a little bit of a jolt of. <laughs> should probably do that at some point um but yeah I'm definitely open to exploring it a bit more the whole point of getting into the thesis was to kind of raise awareness of the Newcastle witches and I can't do that if I just leave my thesis on my bookshelf so indeed so if any publishers are listening <laughs> offer Katie money to write her book yeah we would like somebody <laughs> to pay for the memorial and somebody to pay for Katie's book that would be grand yes please <laughs> David, I also wondered, like, aside from the um, memorial that you guys are working on, what else have you got at the castle that people can come and see and find out and learn about this particular period of history of Newcastle? So we've actually uh, just been working with uh, the university, with the students um, in the School of Culture and Heritage, who have been doing some work on our castle characters. These are... Um, characters that we sort of use to interpret the history of the castle, really. So they're all real people um, who actually lived at the castle um, that we can document. 
and um, you can uh, you can occasionally meet them now if you come around to the castle. There are uh, we have some uh, we've been recruiting uh, some volunteers as live interpreters who actually dress as some of these characters and kind of uh, will chat to visitors and and things like that. So we've got a medieval barber surgeon um, who you can practice pulling teeth with and uh, things like that. Um, and Mary Bruce, the sister of Robert the Bruce, okay. so. Uh, who will gladly regale you with stuff about uh, sort of noble life in uh, the Middle Ages. But we've been looking to kind of do characters from different periods of history as well. The castle is originally a medieval site, but that's not the whole of its story. And so we were looking to do characters from this kind of early modern period of history, um, so 16th, 17th century. And uh, the first one of those is Jane Martin, who uh, yes. launched the, the project and um, have done a lot of research into Jane uh, and have been developing things like um, a costume for volunteers to wear and notes and things on her life so they can kind of help to try and bring this period to life a little bit um, at the castle. So um, we also have regular talks. Um, so uh, Katie comes and talks at the castle quite regularly along with various other uh, uh, very erudite people. Um, on the subject of sort of witchcraft and folklore and things like that. So if you are at all interested in that um, side of history in those kind of topics, then, yeah, we generally have a, a pretty full programme of talks and things on throughout the year, um, which you are welcome to pop along to. They're in the Black Gate, so they are nice and comfy. Yes, the Black and, Gate, yeah. Know, yes. It's a great place for spooky conversations. Um, and... Katie, I know you feel very strongly about, just going back to memorials, you feel really strongly about us having one here in Newcastle. And why? And, you know, <laughs> like, where, where else can people find memorials or information about witch trials across England? Um, so for the, the why, I've got about 15,000 words on this in my thesis, so I'll try to be brief. Um, so as well as it being important to recognise victims of historical injustice in this way. Um, so it's an important local story. The Newcastle witch trials and the Derwentdale accusations, slightly later in 1673, are of national significance to the history of like our understanding of witchcraft. And... Um, the Newcastle hanging in 1650 was the the largest hanging for witchcraft on a single day in English history. Um, you do have the comparison of the Chelmsford witches in the mid-1640s, but they were executed separately in batches. Again, it's an, a kind of bizarrely pragmatic and technical way of discussing yeah. this, um, but it does seem quite strange and out of place that we don't have a memorial to the largest mass mm -hmm. hanging of witches in English history. Um, and in kind of grounding this justification for a memorial in the proposal that I've been working with, with the working on with the castle and within my own thesis, uh, I've been comparing with other pre-existing memorials to kind of guide what, what Newcastle can and should be doing for for its victims mm -hmm. of witch hunts so bizarrely there was no kind of plaque or permanent memorial to the pendle witches until 2001 that is strange because it is so famous exactly it's so, so well known, well known yeah. with the the plays and kind of pots um 
discussion of it being like widely published like it mm-hmm. the legacy kind of started immediately after the trials concluded so you had hundreds of years of cultural awareness of the Pendle witches but no kind of physical memorial until 2001 and that was in <clears throat> in a pub called the Golden Lion um that was it kind of gained a reputation as the site that those condemned to death by hanging at Lancaster Castle um it was the site of their last drink as they were making a procession All right. up to where the gallows were um, it's kind of quite a dubious claim. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty nice. You know, I suppose I'd probably like a pint before. Yeah, but... yeah I do. I think they have some kind of more solid material to suggest that was happening maybe a bit later on um, in, in history, but it's very dubious to suggest that the witches mm-hmm. kind of stopped off for a pint on the way to, to their execution site. But the plaque was put there by the northwest branch of the pagan federation okay. so there is a kind of really interesting intersection between historical witchcraft and things that people are more familiar with um, in terms of witchcraft today and wicca and new age religion and things like that and they did have quite a nuanced approach it wasn't the idea that those executed in the 17th century are also wiccans mm-hmm. there was a kind of more fluid sense of kind of kinship and empathy and it was done in 2001 um to mark the 50th anniversary of the fraudulent mediums act okay so that's season <clears throat> three of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> so i'll not get into that because it's a it's an entire thing um but you definitely can like map a cultural relationship and legacy with 17th century witch trials that extends throughout mm-hmm. history and law and pop culture things like that it's definitely it's sort of in the zeitgeist again i think i actually mm-hmm. uh, just got interviewed for somebody i think it was not uh, newcastle college um uh, a young lady also called katie actually um but she was doing a documentary about uh witchcraft on instagram um, and social yeah. media um, and uh, but wanting to talk a bit about historical witchcraft and the Newcastle mm-hmm. witch trials, so I think yeah, there's definitely a an awareness around that again. I think you're right to say like in the sort of fifties, sixties, seventies, that was very mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so in terms of where people can look more for discussions of other memorials, you've got the campaigns for a national memorial in Scotland. There are already several associated with um, localised witch hunts. I think there's one in Preston Pans in Forfar. Uh, there was some really interesting stuff that came out um, in the fourth centenary of the Pendle Witch Trials in, in 2012. Uh, there was a set of ten tercets, the kind of way markers, okay. um, and each each contained a line of a poem written by Caroline Duffy about um, how a cultural cultural relationship with the Pendle witches today um I actually went to Lancaster on a research trip a couple of years ago and it was kind of weird to find that there are also uh buses emblazoned with uh figures in pointed hats and riding broomsticks so it's very much part of uh that town's identity 
mm-hmm. in a way. So it's nice to see that that is then being backed up with a natural memorial as yeah. opposed to the more the more witch kitsch side of things. Okay. I don't have any other questions. I guess it's quite sad, really. This is like, this is the end. This has been such a journey. (laughs) It's been fantastic. It's been really nice to be involved, to be honest. It's been, yeah, it's been great listening to it. It's, yeah, I've, I've learned so much and discovered so much about just the history of Newcastle doing this. Um... And so thank you to everyone for listening, but also thank you to all our guests. I know, Katie, you've been on the podcast quite a few times and you shared a lot of your research, so thank you so much. And also thank you, David, and the team at Newcastle Castle, because you first sort of inspired me to start digging further into this and thinking about the history of a site and a place and how that extended. So thank you so much for being part of the Newcastle Witches podcast and thank you to everyone Um, for listening.